0: To Luke chapter 22, we return this Lord's Day morning after a break for Christmas last week. Luke 22, we'll pick up at verse 19. While you're turning, may I uh, take this time to remind you that we are at this point in Luke's gospel, nearing the end of the Passion Week, as it is sometimes uh, called. Jesus' last week of life and ministry that will include his death On the cross, we've seen him enter the city on a Sunday with a bang to the sound of the praises of the people, where soon thereafter we saw him purge the temple of the money changers who were defiling that place for which his zeal burns, the house of the Lord. The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes have taken turns attempting to trick Jesus into traps, which he has handily turned back on their own heads. He has taught in the temple. He has warned in the temple of the events that would soon fall on Jerusalem during their generation in judgment for her refusal to receive him as Savior and Lord. He's spoken again of his impending death, now closer than ever, and now we find him with his disciples in the upper room celebrating the first Lord's Supper on the occasion of Passover, which supper also will prove to be his last before the cross. Judas, we've learned along the way, unbeknownst to other disciples, to the other ones that is in the room, has cut a deal, has conspired with the chief priests and officers to betray Jesus into their hands, which he will do later this same evening. For now, and we go to the upper room where a couple of, uh, where we were a couple of weeks ago to hear the conversation, including Jesus' final teachings to his disciples before he'll be taken from them. What will Jesus have to say in the precious little time that he has left with the men whom he has loved so much and so well over these nearly three years of ministry Let's listen carefully. Mr. Shields has already asked the Lord's blessing on the word. Let's go straight to it. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There is once again in the Bible sovereignty, unvarnished sovereignty, and unvarnished human responsibility side by side. This has been determined but woe to the man who does it. And verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with The transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. What would you say to your children or your best friends or your students if you knew that you had but a few minutes Maybe a couple of hours before you would be taken from them. What kind of instructions? What encouragements? What warnings? Jesus knew on this evening in the upper room that by the next morning, he and his beloved disciples will have been parted, and he will be taken from them to accomplish the terrible task for which he came to begin with, the errand that he was born to accomplish And that is to die. Now with but a few precious minutes left, what would he have to say to them? This, in effect, is Jesus' last will and testament before his death. So how important must these last thoughts have been in his mind for his disciples to hear? Well, in the Lord's kind providence, we come to these last teachings of Jesus at an important place in our own lives, too, a point of some uh, moment for us. Oh, we're about to start another year, Lord willing. It is a good opportunity, this holiday, for Christians especially, who know the realities of life, its brevity, but also its desperate importance to stop and to consider their lives. What is most important, after all? Whether we will live to see another New Year celebration or perhaps meet the Lord in person before this year is over, how will we want to have lived? What principles will we want to have animated us? and marked us as children of our Heavenly Father in this brief and fleeting life of ours. Well, having just one chance at pleasing our Maker and Savior, we'll do well to hear what he had to say during the waning minutes and hours of his last full day of life. The first thing he teaches us is that we must live lives marked by and governed by humility. Humility. It is almost unbelievable, it almost takes our breath away, but I think it's eloquent testimony to the power of pride to read that even as Jesus is telling his disciples that he's about to be taken from them even as he's just led them in the very first Lord's Supper, has told them in yet another way that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which, by the way, is about to be given for them and poured out for them, dunderheadedly, these guys break into a fight over which of them is most important. Hello? Really? Really? Is that all you guys can think about? And that in a moment like this? By the way, if you are having a sense of deja vu right now, you should be. Because this happened before. We saw it back in chapter 9. And that right after uh, Jesus had told them there about his impending death. The same circumstances. What are they thinking? Where are they? What planet are these guys on? To what do you compare them? Maybe children on the deck of a sinking Titanic arguing over which is the favorite of their soon-to-be late father who's going to perish in the icy Atlantic water? It's just foolish. Nuts. But I say this is eloquent witness to the power of pride to twist and to blind and to make devil's play of the human heart. From very near the beginning of the world, pride has proven to be the very powerful and terrible thing that it is. Powerful enough to drive a wedge between God and his creation. Pride it was that rose up in the Garden of Eden, where true to form, it manifested itself in the pursuit of position and of prestige. You shall be like God was the line, and they swallowed it with sinker and hook as well. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, had it all. But pride blinded them to what was right in front of them, just as it blinded the disciples here to the Lord, who was right there, but would not be with them much longer. Not in the physical sense, anyway. Instead of giving glory to God and, and treasuring every minute they had to spend with Jesus, they descended into a game of one-upmanship. We think them foolish. And they are easy targets for our criticism. But have things changed much since the death and resurrection of Jesus? Are Christians now immune to the pride that leads to this sort of jockeying for position and recognition in the kingdom of God? Alas, listen closely to conversations between many Christians today, and it will not be long before you hear the same foolishness. Pride and one-upmanship continue full strength in the church today. The steering of conversations in ways guaranteed to provide oneself opportunity to, to appear superior to others in some way or another. Comments dropped with the intention of strutting my knowledge, my experience, my wisdom, my thoughts. Pride continues to rear its very ugly head in the church today in other cases it's a little more subtle that sneer that that knowing glance between one believer and another some little gloat over some piece of knowledge maybe not yet shared or comprehended by another believer in Christ betrays betrays a heart that really thinks that I am better, I am smarter, I am more important, more educated, more advanced, more holy than the next Christian. And what is more, everyone else needs to know that too. I can say it in Latin. Latin. After all, and that using not the classical, but the ecclesiastical pronunciation. Well, congratulations. Or how about those Christians who feel like they have the right to look down their nose at fellow believers and judge them? Don't you just hate Christians like that? That was a joke. (laughs) The death that Jesus was about to die on behalf of these silly disciples shows, by way of contrast, how truly imbecilic Was there a little controversy about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, and what that sin required for every one of us to be saved, regardless of your degrees, or the initials behind your name, or how much you know, or think you know, or where you've been, or whom you've read, or where you went to school, or didn't go to school or what position you hold in the church, I say sin and the sacrifice that sin required Jesus to pay reveals your petty pride as the foolishness that it really is. Instead, Jesus says, this is how greatness is found in the kingdom of God. It's found in being the least. Which is what he meant by saying the youngest. In that culture, the youngest would have been also the least. Real leadership in the kingdom of God is service in the kingdom of God. Jesus was obviously the greatest one of them all in the room that evening. So great, I mean, it just flattened them. There there was no who's greater or who's lesser here. Jesus is in the room. Everybody else is here, and he's here. But where was Jesus when they entered that room? Do you remember? He was on his knees with a towel wrapped around his waist, cleaning their Filthy feet. All the erudition, all the wealth, all the experience of the world, all the titles, ecclesiastical or otherwise, are, are counted as nothing, less than nothing in comparison with the simple service of a real disciple who serves his master or hers where he or she finds themselves in whatever state. Whatever station that day. Thinking in terms of the new year before us that begins in a couple of days, you might choose to make another sort of resolution besides you know, losing weight and exercising more and and reading this book or that. Uh, the resolution of Charles Simeon, the great Anglican evangelical of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, speaking to himself in his diary talk not. About myself. Or Thomas Akempis in his masterpiece, Imitation of Christ, Desire to be unknown. See how many ways in the coming year you can take attention off of yourself rather than trying very hard to bring it on to yourself. That's the first point, live lives marked by and governed by humility. The second thing Jesus teaches us here in these verses is not unrelated to the first. We must live lives of dependence upon him. Even at this late stage in the game, Peter, whom Jesus calls here Simon, I think probably to avoid that sort of rock-solid reference to Peter, and making reference, rather, maybe to Simon's weakness. I don't know that for sure, but I have a sneaking suspicion that's what the Lord was after. I say Simon has here a very difficult lesson to learn. When, when Jesus informs Simon Peter, warns him, really, that Satan demanded to have him, to sift him like wheat. That is, to buffet him like, like wheat that is shaken and beaten and sifted through a sieve lined with jagged, edged wires... Peter insists in response, Lord, I'm ready. Bring it on. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die with you. You who know your Bibles know that he was not. He was anything but ready. He wasn't ready because he was evidently depending on his own strength. He wasn't ready to face the foe because he was going to face the foe alone. Here's just another form that pride takes. Drawing on our own strength. On strength which is no strength at all. The strength we attempt to draw from ourselves rather than from Christ. How much of our lives are lived just that way, trying very, very hard to live the Christian life, but doing so by our own strength, in our own power, under our own steam. And to the extent that we do that, we fail. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Or Paul puts it conversely, I can do all things Through Christ, who strengthens me. I fear that I have lived entire days, weeks, months, years of my life depending utterly on my own strength. It's very easy to do, one day at a time. Just get up in the morning, give no thought whatsoever to God, don't pray, don't ask for His help. Just plunge into your work. Pretty soon, lunch rolls around, gulp down a few bites, and then plunge into the afternoon. Before you know it, it's bedtime. You've lived the whole day completely on your own strength. But looking back on such days, what do you accomplish, really, on such days as that? Brothers and sisters, if you depend on your own strength, you will accomplish exactly what you can do by your own strength, nothing less and nothing more. If you depend on God and on his strength, you will accomplish what God's strength can do. And nothing less. Maybe you've heard the story about the little boy who spent his Saturday mornings playing in his sandbox. He had with him in the sandbox cars and trucks, little toys, and his plastic pail and a shiny red shovel. In the process of creating roads and tunnels for his little cars in the soft sand, he discovered a large rock in the middle of his sandbox. The lad dug around the rock, managing to dislodge it a little bit from the dirt. With no little bit of struggle, he pushed and nudged the rock across the sandbox using his feet bracing himself against the side of the box. He was a very small boy, and the rock was very large. When the boy got the rock to the edge of the sandbox, however, he found he couldn't roll it over the little wall. Determined, the little boy shoved and pushed and pried, but every time he had made a little bit of progress, the rock would tip back and fall back into the sandbox. The little boy grunted and struggled and pushed and shoved, but his only reward was to have the rock roll back again and again and finally roll back and smash his little fingers underneath it. And he burst into tears of frustration. And all this time, the the father of this boy had been watching from his living room window as all this drama unfolded. The moment that his tears fell, a large shadow fell across the boy and the sandbox. It was, of course, his father. Gently but firmly, he said, Son, why didn't you use all the strength you had available? to you defeated the boy sobbed back but I did daddy I did I used all the strength I had no son corrected the father kindly you didn't use all the strength you had you didn't ask me With that, the father reached down, picked up the rock, and threw it out of the sandbox. Peter thought he could do it by himself. That's how he was living. He would take on Satan himself, and he would never, ever deny Jesus. He was going to go to prison for Jesus. He was going to die for Jesus. failed. Dear flock, without Christ, you can do nothing. But with him, depending on him, you can do all things. Make his strength your strength. Don't let a day start. Don't get out of bed in the morning, but that you remember and speak to the Lord and look to him. Call on him for his strength To make his strength your strength. Don't dare to start a task in this coming year. Don't start this coming year trying to live your life without asking God to work in you what is pleasing to him. You will find that the rocks that were impossible for you to move by your own strength, in fact, are entirely movable by his and easy for him. Finally, third, be prepared for a life of warfare. The reason that you need to operate not by your own strength, but with the strength that God provides, the reason that you need to live a life humble and not arrogant and proud of your own strength, is that you are not carried into heaven on beds of uh, ease. It's not the playground to which you've been called Christian. It is the battleground. That's the point Jesus is making here in verse 35. Remember the errand on which he'd sent his disciples, the 70 or 72 that we read about back in chapter 10? Without money bag, without knapsack, uh, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And along the way, people provided for their needs. And that was in a day when Jesus was much more popular, was more favorably received, as were those who followed him. But now things were a-changing. The landscape was shifting. Jesus would be popular no more. Nor would his followers be. Spiritual warfare was going to intensify, and that was the point of Jesus' expression in verse 36 But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, time doesn't allow me to describe to you all the ways that this verse has been misunderstood and misapplied through the centuries. The disciples were not the last one to miss this point of Jesus almost completely. He didn't mean for them to go out and buy literal swords. That wasn't Jesus' point at all. Jesus we've heard over and over use powerful expressions. Pluck out your right eye if it causes you to sin. Cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. This is an expression. This is a manner of speech. But the dull disciples take them literally. Oh, oh! We should buy swords, right? Um, well, um, well, hey, wow. Great! Look, we've got two! And now we'll only have to buy 10 more. <laughs> OK, Jesus says, "It's enough. This is an expression in verse 38, by the way, that was popular in Jesus' day. It meant, basically, just forget it. <laughs> just forget that I even brought it up. Forget the whole thing. We'll come back to this another day. Just, just drop it right there. They had completely missed the point. Jesus was not saying, arm yourselves physically. He was saying that the war is on, the spiritual war that would now come to its greatest conflict at the cross, where Jesus would effectively win the war. We saw that last week, didn't we? But which would continue and continues even today until he comes again. In today 's terms, Jesus was not saying, "Let every Christian have a thirty eight revolver in his nightstand, or let every Christian pack a concealed weapon," though there is certainly nothing against christ 's law in that, uh, but rather be prepared, be prepared for the war. Arm yourself for spiritual battle. The war is on the war for your soul and for your body, Christian. That war is on today. Peter was not the only person of interest to Satan. You are too. And he would sift you like wheat if he could. Armed with the word of God as your sword, you must do battle against temptation and sin. And as for the kingdom of God and its advancement in the world... You must be able to wield that sword effectively in the proclamation of and application of the gospel. The weapons, Paul writes, of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. That's the warfare in which you are fighting still today, Christians. And in that war, there is no room for pride. Proud soldiers die in war of pride. To give foothold to that enemy would be suffer defeat from within yourself before you even got into the thick of battle. And no soldier can fight on his own strength. Do that, and you will for sure fail in this war. You will lose if you fight by your own strength. We wield spiritual weapons, the sword of God's word, by the strength of the Lord. And in this new year, by his strength that the Lord supplies alone. Amen.